and the legendary Burl Bear, the man of the lawyer chair, famed attorney, Don Waldman. We're going to talk about the Washington gate crashers. Have you ever tried to cash a crash a gate in Washington? Right. Or whose crime is it anyway, is what this is going to be about. <laughs> and a little bit about ethics as well. Oh, media frenzies, craziness. Diane Diamond. Yes, I'm here. How are you? Better and better every day and every way, you crime hottie. I'm glad Great. you didn't mind me calling you that. <laughs> Not at all. I, I was flattered indeed. Oh, good, good, good. Tell us about how scary it was that the President of the United States was exposed to gate crashers who could have killed him or whatever. And they must have been terrorists. Obviously. Ooh. Either that or I read this other article that said that the reason the guy was there is because he and Obama were in a, a, a secret Pakistani, uh, Palestinian Muslim conspiracy and they were passing notes back and forth. Oh. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, blah I mean, really. Right. Homeland nah. Security investigations, hearings. What a bunch of baloney. For what a bunch of hooey, and it's all based on uh, something that didn't happen in the first place. Yeah, I this mean, is really irresponsible journalism of the first degree. Oh, you got it. You got that right. I'll tell you what. When I used to cover the White House as a rookie reporter, and I, the minute I heard the White House gate crashers, I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. This will be straightened out any day now, because nobody can crash the gate. <laughs> no, no, it's house. a little well, difficult. Diane, one of the things that, of course, comes to mind is to get into the White House, you've got to go by the Secret Service. And they went through at least two checkpoints before they got in. Oh, and before that, uh, the week before, they had submitted their um, Social Security numbers, their date of birth, their citizenship, their names, how do you spell it, you know. But <laughs> with the name Salahi, everybody got all, ooh, it might be a Palestinian coup or some <laughs> silly something. Oh, Exactly. And here's, here's what I found out. Uh, I, you know, you guys know me. I'm a careful investigative journalist. And so I started to piece this thing together to figure out how the heck did it even get started. Well, it started with two gossip columnists at the Washington Post who have long written things about the Salahis. They, they have a family feud going on with their winery and, you know, all sorts of things. So one of these gals was at the White House that night covering the arrivals to a party that she would never, ever be invited to, probably. <laughs> and she looks up and she sees the Salahis are there. Well, uh -oh. how in the world did they get there? For it sounds sake? like a snark factor to me, Diane. Narco-rama. The social world in Washington is a whole different world from the rest of the country. I Actually, mean, I start the book out that way, talking yeah. about that, because I used to live there. I lived there, you know, for 10 years, and... I would never make it into that society. I'm just not of that ilk. But anyway, it, it all got started right the day before Thanksgiving, 2009, and newsrooms across the country, all the reporters are on vacation. But whoever was filling in just grabbed that name, White House Gate Crashers, and it went nationwide, and then, of course, it went worldwide. Well, isn't that because the Washington Post always tells the truth? Oh, yes, of course, and if it was in the Washington Post, well, then everyone should feel comfortable in repeating it, of right? Of course, and they sure did. You know, I've had a I lot mean, a of good, trouble a getting... Good a good story, as you know, Diane, takes precedence over truth any time. Oh, yeah, never let the facts stand in the way <laughs> right. of a good story. I've had a, a, a lot of trouble getting the mainstream media to talk about my book, Cirque du Salahi, because they're at the core of it. You know, they repeated it, too, and they were there to cover that farcical congressional uh, hearing, and they've been there to report all the other uh, erroneous things that have happened well, and, let's, and reported let's, about this couple. Let's back up just a little bit. Just before you joined us, Don and I were chatting, and I, I, <laughs> I mentioned that 
When I was going to school and studying broadcast journalism, which I did under Professor Bill Shadell, who came from the Edward R. Murrow... You should have studied uh, harder. Yeah, Fred Friendly Group. They, they had a thing called uh, journalistic ethics. Yes. <laughs> and which I was, remember that well. <laughs> How do you spell ethics? Uh, E-T... Uh, <laughs> There's an X in there. Yeah, yeah. As it's been X'd out. And it was similar to the process of consultation. And that is, you do not start with opinion. You start with simply the assertion of hard data, of facts. And then you apply the principle or the moral or the law or whatever to the facts to arrive at your of course of action conclusion or whatever. Uh, it seems like there has been a sh- cosmic seismic shift where you start with your opinion and then work backwards. Yeah, but you're giving your opinions under the guise of a news show, and that's what the problem is. This and trial by talk show. you shouldn't ever give your own opinion. Who cares what you think? You're just the reporter of fact, or at least that's the way I was raised. Yeah, well, yeah. guess what? You were raised right... <laughs> Yeah. Am I giving my age away now? Yeah. Give, give, um, give our audience a little bit about of your professional background, besides the fact that your first TV gig was New York, which yeah. I thought was real smart of you to bypass the small markets. I guess well, the- yeah, you know, I figured I'd go right to the top. Yeah, now, I started, I started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the radio. I worked for KOB. Um, I, in high school, I had worked at KGGM, which was a television station, you know, answering the phones and whatnot, and I got to go into the newsroom and help out one day when all of the writers went out for dinner and they had a car accident. Ah. And they needed they just needed a warm body who could type. And I'm in high school and I'm typing news for the for the anchor man to read that night and, and I just was hooked from being a kid. Yeah. So from Albuquerque I went to National Public Radio in Washington D C. Um, I worked for the RKO Radio Networks, which that's when I was covering the White House in Capitol Hill. And lived in Washington about 10 years and then thought, well, radio's dying. It's a dying, the news departments are a dying breed. I'm, if I'm going to try TV, I better try it now while I'm young. Yeah, when you, when you got so, into TV news, was TV news still under the news division or had it already been placed under the entertainment division? No, it was still in the news division. And I went to CBS in New York, WCBS, and I worked with some of the greats like Jim Jensen. And uh, it, it was a... It was a wonderful place to start in television because I just had to sink or swim. You mm-hmm. either knew how to do it or you didn't, kid, get out. And I just faked my way. <laughs> I knew the journalism. I just didn't quite know how to, like, put the mascara on right and, mm-hmm. yeah, all that stuff. But here it is many years later, and I guess I figured it You've out. You've mastered yeah. the art of mascara. And pro- I have. I have indeed. <laughs> in the process, you work for every major news network that there is. I have. I, I've worked for CBS and Fox and uh, Court TV and MSNBC and CNBC and worked with people like Geraldo Rivera and Bill O'Reilly, you know. That, so. That's covering the spectrum. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you know the bottom line, guys? I take my journalism really seriously. Uh, I'm a fun-loving gal and all that, but I take it really seriously. And I, when I see something as bad as the White House gatecrasher story started with a lie grew to monumental proportions, and then I got to meet the Salahis. I, I was assigned by Entertainment Tonight to go and do a story with them. Yeah. And, they, they, listen, make no mistake about it, these these people are kooky. <laughs> I, I, I got that impression. <laughs> you do say in the book, they are odd. <laughs> they are odd, but it's not against the law to be odd. You know, they're like, yeah, uh, but they're odd with money. They were big contributors no, to Obama. No, they don't have any money. They don't. You see, this is part of the fallacy. This is, uh, you know, they're on the Bravo Housewives of TV series, and they make them look like they have money, but in reality, they don't. They're about to lose their house. I thought they had a winery. 
Well, they did, but it was placed into bankruptcy in 2007 Ooh. by his mother, who I was going <laughs> to say... The news doesn't stable, publish but... that part of it. <laughs> well, well, you know, so uh, it, it just... They, they are kooky crazy. I describe them as being like... Um, Sort of like Thurston Howell III in Gilligan's Island, that couple, you know. They just live on this different planet and call each other lobby and... Pretend they have money, but they don't. I think Diana's a background. Which I understand you spent a lot of time interviewing this couple. Oh, I did. So I, you are uh, an expert on them. Well, I don't know expert because they com- continue to completely surprise me every time they turn around. You know, after I had finished researching, I went down to Virginia and, and practically lived with them for a while. Uh, and, and I thought, well, but these poor beleaguered people, you know, it, this shouldn't happen to anybody. They got all dressed up went to a party that they had every reason to believe they were invited to. In the book, I have all of the emails transaction between them and this White House liaison they were working with. Secret Service uh, sworn statements to the Secret Service are in the book. I mean, these people thought they were invited to a party, and the minute they went, their lives have never been the same. And, and they are kooky and crazy, but nobody deserves 10 straight months of the media haranguing and digging up stuff and uh, really, frankly, out and out lying about several things in their past. You know what this brought back images of was the McMartin trial back in L.A. Oh, here years ago mm-hmm. where they did the same kind of thing involving a, the McMartin school and all of this child abuse that never happened, and they just ran with it. Right, right. Well, I, I tell you, there is a chapter in the book where I talk about the media madness that goes on, and, and I call it lock-and-load journalism. You just lock on to something, and then they cannot let it go. Um, John and Patsy Ramsey. They, oh, we were positive they must have killed John oh, God. Yeah. There are still people ranting about that, and I spent a lot of time with John Douglas, the FBI agent who was oh, on the case. Oh, I so admire him, yes. And John Douglas told me right to my face, he said, those people were so grief-stricken it was beyond comprehension, and they got nailed in the press and by the public because they didn't cry enough on television. Yeah. That, that's exactly yeah. right. Well, how about uh, how about the guy who uh, the the media decided was the uh, Olympic bomber? Oh in Atlanta? my God! Yes, <laughs> Richard Jewell. No, he wasn't. Oopsie Daisy. It it was a guy named Eric Rudolph. And and what about Stephen Hatfield? You know, he had once worked with anthrax twenty years ago, so we figured that he was the one who spread all the anthrax in the envelopes. Except he didn't. You know, so it it um, it disturbs me when the media gets it wrong. It really disturbs me when they don't admit they get it wrong. Well, that, that's, which I don't want to get political, but what the hell was wrong with the Obama administration not telling the truth here? Bing, bada, boom. Boy, that's the $64,000 question. You, you know, I, there's a chapter in the book where you'll read uh, exactly what went on in that receiving line. And Mikhail Salahi says, Mr. President, nice to see you again. The last time we saw you was at that event we sponsored for you called Rock the Vote. So it, it, these, that's something you probably haven't heard, but the Salahis were big, big backers of not only Barack Obama, but the Democratic Party for years. Yeah, that's when he was a freshman senator out of Illinois. Right, right. So, and, and, and in the receiving line, if you look at that famous picture where he's shaking hands with her, he's smiling broadly, he's, he's kind of bobbing his head up and down and going, oh yeah, rock the vote. You mean the picture was on the front page of every newspaper in the country? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, so I asked Mrs. Salahi, what were you saying there? And she told me about this conversation, and this light bulb went on over my head. 
wait a minute, it's called Politics 101. You don't leave your supporters out dangling for every media outlet in the world to erroneously say they were White House gate crashers. He had to have seen that. The president had to have seen that coverage the next day or the day after. Why didn't he just stop it at its core? Nip it in the bud. I I just can't tell you. I have no idea. It's probably a matter of what they call the delegation of authority downline. Who was the woman who was uh, wound up, I think, uh, getting her uh, something in a ringer over this? (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, Desiree Rogers. She was the uh, social secretary. And, yeah, she she kept her job for several months and then went away. Yeah, a lot of people lost their jobs over this. Well, not only did he let the Salahis, these Democratic Party supporters, twist in the wind for however long. I mean, they're still twisting. But there were three of his trusted Secret Service agents who were suspended. I believe their careers are over now. Although the Secret Service won't say what they've done with them, I think they're out of service now. I think they've been, their careers are over. Well, it seems to me like if you go back to the origin of the story, I think this snark factor, the Washington, D.C. power structure, who got invited, or as my, my niece says in, in Hollywood, it's not who you know, it's where you're seated. Yes, yes, <laughs> or where you get into. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that really, if you trace it back, is the core of the problem. It's the gossip columnist for the Post. Yes, and you know, the Washington Post, I did a lot of research on how they covered the story, their own ombudsman, Andrew, I've forgotten his last name, did a piece in the Washington Post saying, okay, everybody, we hear your complaints about us doing too much Salahi news. But, he indicated, we're not going to stop because our hits on our website are up by, you know, a gajillion yeah, amount. you bet, you bet. And our, we're making money hand over fist with this story, so there's no way... Deal-driven news. <laughs> Therein lies the problem, right there. Yeah. It's just a matter of getting viewers or readers. I, I remember uh, in the old days, as my daughter always says, yeah, well, in the old when days. When the news was news. <laughs> when the news was news and it wasn't a business, it was a public service. Uh, Some of the stories that the lock-and-load journalists get on don't mean a hill of beans to people out there just trying to figure out how to make their paycheck, you know? No, but the balloon uh, boy was interesting, but it was hardly that's an not news. Story. Have you ever watched Los Angeles news? Yes, I used to live out there. <laughs> well, then you know that Los Angeles is the only market I've ever been in where I've actually seen an, a reporter doing an you know an on the scene report. I'm here at the corner of Sepulveda and Sherman Way, where there was almost an accident. Nothing happened. And yes. <laughs> or, or at 10 o'clock this morning, there was a fire here, and now it's 11 o'clock at night, and you can't see anything behind yeah. me, but take my word for it. Take my word for it, right. But, yeah. but, and here's a shot of the sky where two planes did not collide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the hell is this? You know, I, I have tried, uh, in the book, actually, I write a whole chapter on why do we care about people who are on reality TV anyway. One of the fallacies was they went to the White House so she could get cast in this Housewives of D.C. Well, she was the reality cast. was she had already been cast. Yeah, absolutely. She'd been cast for eight months. Didn't she, come, didn't she come there with a camera crew? Yeah, and she went with a camera crew. <laughs> they let the camera crew in, too. But, no, but they didn't. Oh, and they didn't. Now, here's another thing. When you talk about the public being uh, able to trust the media, that's the subtitle of this book, Cirque du Salahi, Be Careful Who You Trust. We're supposed to be able to trust the media, right? So we've talked about the news division. Let's talk about reality TV. Let's talk about Bravo Television, 
who on October 7th, so that's coming up next week, next Thursday, they're going to finally air their episode of the Salahis Go to the White House. Timing is everything, huh? Well, yeah, but that's 10 months. <laughs> right, they that's have what I mean. You need, video. Of, you need a lot of lead time for post-production, Diane. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 think of, think of it from the Salahis' point of view. It's been 10 months, and this is the alibi video. They have been sitting on the proof that these people were not the gate crashers for 10 months months why for ratings exactly we gotta wait for the sweeps i just i to me that's a shameful thing they they could have put this to rest the next day they could have said to the secret service or to the public hey 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 well wait a minute please don't think ill of this woman who's going to be on our show coming up because look here's the video see that that's a secret service agent see they're being waved right in instead they held it that's a that's a pr- entertainment programming decision. What yeah. drew you to the story initially? Um, the the idea that there could be a gate crasher. I, I went out for dinner with a Secret Service source of mine, longtime guy. I've known him for years, and I said to him, "What's the deal? How could these people have snuck in?" And he said, "They couldn't have." I said, oh, come on. He said, I'll get you with some people in Washington. So I talked to some Secret Service sources in Washington, and they all said, you can't sneak in. That's, what I, that's everybody's impression. That's what was such a shocking story. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got yeah. Secret Service sources as well. Say that five times fast. It was my same impression. You can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But here it is ten months later, and you know what? They're still call- They're still referred to as the White House gate crashers again. They're kooky. They're crazy. She may or may not pose for Playboy. I don't know. <laughs> today they they, uh, they auctioned off their sorry today for $7,000. Somebody bought it. Oh, my. Um, you know, they're going to give the proceeds to multiple sclerosis and another charity. But um, th- there are a lot of things. But nobody deserves to be hammered like this torn to shreds, their reputation gone for 10 months. I mean, if it could happen to them, it could happen to you or me. Now, here's a hypothetical for you. If this had taken place back in the days of CBS News with Edward R. Murrow and Fred Friendly and all that, would it have dragged out these 10 months? No, that's when the news was a separate department. Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that it even would have made the news. Probably not, and if if someone had made an issue out of it, they would have debunked it real fast. Yeah, and and you know why? Because the press secretary at the White House would have debunked it. He would have come out and he would have said, no, 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 hey, time out. You people have it all wrong. Now, we're trying to figure out exactly what happened because their name wasn't on the official guest list that had been standing for six weeks. They were on a secondary guest list. You yeah, know, but when doesn't this happen all the time? Happens all the time. Right. And, and for people who say, oh, yeah, well, then show me the invite. They didn't have a paper invite. They were invited, as people are on this off-the-record list, by email. And I have all the emails. They're all in the book. You can read them, and then you can read what the White House actually said not one, not two, not three, not eight days later, they finally made a statement. And what they did was put it under the name of Michelle Jones. She was the liaison who had been writing the emails to the Salahis. And in this document, in this statement, she says, uh, I'm Michelle Jones, never told the Salahis that I could get them tickets. 
I don't have the authority to get any tickets for any White House events. Well, well, that sure me. clears up everything. <laughs> yeah, read, read, read her emails in the book. You know, there, it's right there. It clearly, she's saying, hopefully I can get you dinner tickets. You're in for the welcoming ceremony, <laughs> and I'm still working getting you dinner tickets. So it, the statement was a complete lie. And not so who, one member of the media covering, challenged them. Who's covering who's took us on this? I mean, it comes back to, again, downline of delegated authority. Everyone's afraid of losing their job. Everyone wants to do what they think is going to be in the best interest of covering themselves. Right. And uh, I don't go so far as to take it inverse all the way to the top. Uh, this isn't like the Watergate cover-up here. No, hardly. Uh, you know, I think no, no, the. No. I mean, this is a dinner party, and I think the president of any major uh, country has a lot more on his plate than a dinner party. Uh, you'd think that the people, the downline of people who are delegated to handle these things, would handle them properly. Exactly. Well, the only reason I can offer, and I, I write about it, is that Michelle Jones was the highest-ranking female African American in the military, and she was the one, if you remember back to the convention, uh, that rousing speech that Barack Obama gave that got him all the attention uh, on the national scene, she introduced him at the DNC. So they have this history, and I don't think he wanted her to take the fall for anything. Loyalty is to be applauded. But you know what? As the November elections are approaching, I'm not sure I want a president that lets a dinner party snafu simmer and erupt and and go on for 10 long months i mean come on please. well it's not just the dinner party it's the appearance the appearance of a security breach that's serious that didn't right. exist right right that's right. that's that didn't the even exist. see now this hurts until people were saying well what kind of security you know what uh, and it becomes a negative on him what i have found fascinating in looking at this story i said i knew, knew that you were going to be on was how different groups or different people of different mindsets view this entire episode. As I re referred to earlier, there is an entire faction of people who think that the reason that those people were there at uh, the president's invite is because this gentleman happens to be tied, happens to be Palestinian, and that yeah. they were passing notes back and forth as part of a secret uh, conspiracy. I mean, just the opposite end of the scale. You know, Listen, I mean, I, I'm going I'm to say something that may sound cruel. And, and I don't mean it to be. Uh, I'm, there's a lot of stuff in the book that the Salahis are pretty mad at me about adding. But, you know, it was my book, and I got to control the content. That means it's a good book. But these people are not Einsteins, <laughs> okay? They're, they're not overly intelligent. They love a party. They love to drop a name. They love to say, I play polo with Prince Charles, which he does. Uh, and, and they love to take a free trip whenever they can. And one time, they took one trip with the Palestinian Authority, something or another. I can't right. even remember yeah. the name so of So that's group. where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. And they, they went overseas, and they met Abu Mazen, and they got their pictures taken, because they have a million thousand gazillion pictures of them with famous people. Like ZZ Top. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and like with President Obama back in 2005 when they first started to support him. Yeah, this got a lot like Matt's brother, Marty, if you ever met him. Kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. So uh, from that, it's extrapolated that, well, his dad was Palestinian, and, and, and he has a picture with Abu Mazen, so he must be a spy. <laughs> Stop it. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. My God, a 10-line press release could have stopped all this. Yes. And, yes, be, and you know, it wasn't worthy of being a story in the first place? 
You know, uh, I, when I went back and did this media autopsy, where does it start? How did it fester? Then what happened? I see that the Washington Post started to say things like, well, we're the ones who broke the story about the monumental breach of security. <laughs> it's national security. It's, oh, it's very important. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that important. Now, what I find fascinating is this non-issue, non-breach of security, non, non-story, is not only yielded tons of, of uh, website hits for the Post, high ratings for all sorts of people, uh, future coming high ratings for Bravo Network, and a book for you. I mean, it's, yes. it's working out wonderfully, and then they could probably sell rights for a TV movie on this. It may all have a happy end. And you know well, what? D- 90% of the public doesn't know the truth as we sit here right now. That's right. And they'll say, but, but wait a minute. She, she said she was a Miss USA, and she wasn't really. Ooh, that's well, serious. yes, she was, because I found the proof of that. She was in the Miss USA contest 1990 out of the Pennsylvania chapter. And they'll say, oh, but, but, but they owe a lot of money to people because uh, he went bankrupt. And I write in the book, yeah, they did. They do. They owe a lot of money to a lot of people. They have a lot of financial problems, like a lot of Americans. Sounds like a lot so, of rationalizations to me. I mean, yeah. like, if you want to use it, like uh, people have saying, "Well, this is a real problem with this administration. The the security can't even protect the president at a dinner party. How are they going to protect him on a world tour?" You know, uh, I mean, this you can spin this thing any way you want, and the spin is being done on something totally irrelevant. Exactly. Exactly, and. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists for the book because I wanted to do this chapter on reality TV. Who wants to be on it? I mean, would you want cameras following you guys around? Oh, we've been there, done that. We wouldn't, but there's, <laughs> oh, there's yeah. an awful lot of people who would, that 15 Not, minutes yeah, of fame. Right. Hey, I but was then, on the Dog Whisperer twice. <laughs> were you really? Yes. I love I, that show. Oh, Caesar's great, by the way. He really is exactly as he appears on TV. Yeah, oh gosh, I do love that show. But I wonder <laughs> and about our friend who... Howard Lapidus, uh, who does the show with us occasionally, is executive producer of uh, Celebrity Rehab, which of course is a reality show. Oh, is that uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky? Yeah, right. You got yeah. it. Not to be confused he... with Dr. Dre, it's a different doctor. <laughs> he, he uh, Pinsky did a really interesting study about who wants to be a, a cast member on these things. And then I wondered, who the heck sits and watches it all? I do. I uh, love that stuff. You watch you really? the Real Housewives yeah. of T- D.C.? You'd have to tie me down. Oh, no. I, I watched that in Silver House, and Sex Rehab was kind of no, interesting. Really. Uh, but the one that really gets me, you ever watch Wife Swap? Oh, one, one time for about seven minutes. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite. Oh, stop. Now, it's see, predictable I, as hell. <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the, this one psychiatrist, Dr. Keith Abloh, I, I quote in the book, and he says, you know... I, I, I worry for the future because it's becoming a reality TV society. There's, they see these people on television who, you know, snooky in the situation, <laughs> and they, you know, they make $40,000 an episode, and I can be that creepy. I can be that uh, narcissistic. Sure, I, pay I can me get for my it. own show. That's right. And so that the young people especially have begun to embrace this sort of character as being what will make you successful. I'll tell you oh what, there's a, a friend of ours who's very, very good looking, and she's been a bit an actress, and she's been in several motion pictures, and she's kind of semi-retired, lives in Florida, still very, very attractive. They came to her and wanted to be in one of these extreme makeover things. Well, she's already very good looking. What they're going to do is make her look bad to begin with. Yeah. You know, unmake her over, make her look horrible, and then by the end of the show, she'll look like she usually does. Yeah, and then they'll say, look how beautiful uh, yeah. she was already. Yeah. You know, I found... In my research, that the 
the typical reality TV contract. Everybody thinks they're getting rich on this. Oh my TV God! They're not. They've been working on this for like seventeen months now. They made twenty grand. Yeah. Yeah. Just twenty grand. That's well, all. The networks months. love reality show because their production costs it's are so nothing. low. It's low budget. It's so cheap, unless you're Snooky and you know, get drunk on a beach in New Jersey and vomit, <laughs> then you can make forty grand an episode. <laughs> I got to practice um, drinking or vomiting. One of the two. I swear, on the beach. Yeah. On a public beach. We, I'm in L.A. We have beaches here. I could learn to do it. But but the the but the point is the contract that these people have to sign now the Salahis didn't show me theirs because that would have been a breach right. of their confidentiality agreement but there there are copies of it all over the internet there is a paragraph when you read it it's in the uh, back of the book I have a little footnote to it you agree when you sign on to a reality show that you will be humiliated, embarrassed, <laughs> uh, defamed. I forgot all the, the language yeah. of it. <laughs> and people are just signing this thing. Oh, oh yeah, go yeah, ahead. You, you can pay me and humiliate. I know people who pay to be humiliated. Yeah, care. you can lie about me. Oh, and then P.S., by the way, you waive all your rights to ever sue us in perpetuity. Right. And if you make any money off your fame, we get 10% of it. You're damn right. They're not stupid. They're not stupid. <laughs> Crazy. It's oh, crazy. You got to be some narcissistic personality. Speaking of narcissistic, I got a big kick out of the fact that uh, Dr. Drew uh, has a book on uh, narcissism with his picture on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Dr. Drew has a, a study that he did several years ago now of people in show business or entertainment, and he it's a it's a huge survey and it's a scientific study. So they, they studied people like you guys, you know, radio people, TV people, musicians, comedians, magicians, everybody. Oh, magicians. Yeah, and his conclusion was, you know who is the most narcissistic of everybody, all of them? Magicians? No, reality TV characters. Sure. That, that's probably because they don't come sense. from a show business. They're not doing it professionally. No, because they just think they can be their uh, own miserable selves. And <laughs> the more miserable, the better, because that's what sells. It's so much like that movie Network. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to take it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to take it. <clears throat> and I mean, yeah. that, if that was not a prophetic film, I don't know what was, because, you know, it, it, where it went with, no, we was going to follow the, you know, the Palestine Liberation Army around for, with cameras. You know, I mean, it's become a reality. Yeah, I, and I, I tell you, I've been in television a long time. I still am a special correspondent for Entertainment Tonight. But I don't watch much of it. I just don't watch much of it anymore. I'll tell you. Well, you know, I, I'm a my my so called so called I can't even talk anymore. Uh, claim to fame is as a you know true crime journalist, right? But uh, Nancy Gray's shows such as this, the people who watch those shows don't buy true crime books. That's not my audience. <laughs> who, who is your audience? My audience actually is people like you, except Iron and Showbiz. Uh, white collar women is uh, is actually who the purchasing, who the market is for yeah, true crime books. That's, that's who that's buys factual. them. That's uh, interesting. Well, you but know, the I'll, people who watch the the you know uh, missing child of the week show and you know weep and cry about our poor Kaylee as if they knew the child uh, personally. Oh, Diane, I'm missing Child of the Week. Oh. I've got to ask you, because you were so obviously involved, and your coverage was so incredible involving this Michael Jackson trial. How oh, yeah. the hell did that verdict come down? Oh, now you're making my brain go back five years. I know you um, don't want to, but the, you did such an incredible job of reporting on it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had actually broken the first story on that in 1993. 
so I had watched it for a long time. My personal opinion, the prosecutor got too complicated. He forgot to just tell a story. He got all bogged down in a conspiracy theory and a this and a that. And I know why he did it, because under the law in California, you if you can bring a conspiracy theory in... Right. Common plan. Prior bad X. Yeah. Okay, well, we've got to take a 60-second break. You know what that's about. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend true crime author. And trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Thank you, Sir Roger. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And joining us, Diane Diamond, brilliant TV journalist and expert on all sorts of weird stuff, including Michael, <laughs> including Michael Jackson. Yeah. It, didn't that didn't that family uh, on the, the last Michael Jackson child case, didn't they shop that around to every prosecutor on the planet trying to get someone to take the case? Oh, no, actually, that was exactly the opposite. They uh, came to the attention of the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department and took about a month to decide, almost six weeks, to decide whether or not they wanted to go ahead and press charges, if they would be willing to testify at a trial. No, they hadn't taken it to anybody else at all. Yeah, but didn't they consider the the mother and what her impact would be on the credibility of that poor child? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if they did, but they sure should have, because I think that was the reason, that was part of the reason they uh, lost the case. You asked me before the break. Uh, I think basically they got this whole big idea that if we put conspiracy charges in there, 
we'll be able to bring in more evidence that mm. we otherwise would not be able to bring in. Big mistake. Yeah. Big mistake in retrospect. But, you know, <laughs> I sat in that courtroom every day for five months. What a through, circus. Yeah, through the... Um, through the jury selection down to the day of the verdict, and it was an amazing thing to watch. Uh, you know, that jury was within feet of a, a superstar every day, and he played it just right. He got thinner and thinner and more frail-looking, and he has a bad back, a bad lower back, as do I, so I can sympathize with that. But every day he'd move, you know he'd move a little slower coming yeah, in show up in his he, pajamas he came in his pajama drama day yeah i was there for that and pretty well you know, rehearsed huh and you know what you probably don't remember that day that he showed up in his jammies an hour late under threat of an arrest warrant because he hadn't shown up that was the day that the boy was set to testify. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah, because we were all talking about his jammies with the little blue clouds oh. on them. Yeah. Hey, the guy so knows showbiz. It was perfect. It was perfect. And look, why did they lose? Because they didn't put on a, a good enough case. That's why. Well, the, and the mother was a, a lunatic. I'm sorry. No, just because she lied in deposition, lied about being beaten by her husband, obtained welfare when she wasn't entitled to it. That was no reason to be concerned. Well, I'll tell you, uh, they, they probably should have been more concerned about her. I think they thought <laughs> yeah, probably they could control her. But th there was something mentally wrong with her. There really was. I mean, because she was on the stand, gosh, I think it was five days, and every day it was a different person. Edward Norton's going to play her in the movie. <laughs> it was like I was waiting for her head to spin around and pea soup to start coming out, you know, because one day she was very feisty, and the next day she was very sad and weepy, and then the next day she was like a little girl, and it was it was quite something to watch. She was clearly... A damaged human yeah, being. Yeah, the same thing happened, uh, Don, with the uh, Rhonda Glover's trial. That's the, the, my forthcoming book. She's on on uh, on the stand talking to the uh, defense attorney, and she has one personality. The moment that cross examination starts, all of a sudden, she's an entirely different person. That's a big mistake. Entirely different personality. Yeah, you know, at one point, this mother, the jury foreman, was a Hispanic man. He had been a high school counselor maybe was even still a high school um, coach and counselor. And uh, she leaned over to him during the examination and said, well, you know, people like us, because she was Hispanic too, people like us, you know how we raise our children. Good and she night. starts addressing the jury foreman. It was like oh. so bizarre. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, can I just bring up one other thing? Please, please we're, do. We're talking about this, and uh, I'm still dogged by Michael Jackson fans. Oh, they just hate my guts. When he died, of course, it was my fault. Of course. Because <laughs> of course I, I, you it was. Know, I'd reported on him so long that he, I had drove made him to it. drugs. Yeah, it was yeah. my fault. He put propofol in his arm. Uh, but then now with this case, the Cirque du Salahi book that I, I just did, I am stunned at the different public reaction now the jackson case uh wound up five years ago 2005 was the verdict now we're in 2010 and i'm doing a story about a couple that i believe uh was erroneously fingered by the media for doing something they didn't do they didn't crash the white house they just didn't i mean the proof is in the book but when you go to these websites 
I mean, I revealed that this woman is not anorexic as everybody on the D.C. Housewives claims that she is. She has multiple sclerosis. That's worse. Yeah, she's been suffering with it for 17 years. Her whole family is tall and skinny. She, as a matter of fact, for MS patients, you should be thin. That's the best thing you can be. Um, But anyway, I reveal this in the book that she has multiple sclerosis. And the Internet explodes with reaction. I was, and I thought to myself, wow, I'll really sell a lot of books. Look at all these people who are... 370 comments in an hour. Great. They all hate her. Mm. They have decided that she is a liar. That's right. They won't believe it until they see a doctor's note. Well, no matter. I and if you had a doctor. doctor's note, they say it was a forgery. Yeah. I, I interviewed the doctor, her longtime doctor. I interviewed her nurse. It's all in the book. Her mother, her best friend, her brother. I have like five or six sources on this. Nope. They don't believe it. No, no, she's a, gate, level, she's a gate crasher. That's obvious. Well, for 10 months, they've been told that she's, you know, uh, uh, might as well just be put in jail for all of this. But the level of vitriol on the Internet and, and the disbelief, the, um, here, here it is, it's the lack of empathy. Uh-huh. There's no more empathy in the world anymore. I, I just There was I, a study done on this, and uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm no. sure you'll appreciate it, and that is what's called... Tapping the Inner Sociopath. Mm. And it is done quite often uh, by politicians who are looking for a hate or a a, uh, vitriolic reaction. Real easy to get, too. And that if you can tap into those buttons that will trigger any potential sociopathic, non-empathetic, you know, blame the poor, (laughs) blame the victim, whatever it is, and if it's expedient politically or financially, if you know how to do it, it works great. It worked real good for that guy with a little mustache over in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hello, Hitler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was a vegetarian. So I know, he and he was, an, okay. he was against well, smoking, okay, too. You know, the, the reasoning that the people have given for not believing her very wrenching, uh, uh, her revelation that she has been suffering from MS for 17 years just shocked me. It just shocked me how mean and ugly and awful. You know, there's one site, for example, that uh, they say, we we think she made it up. We want a doctor's note. She picked MS because that's her initials, Mikhail Salahi. (laughs) And then one guy writes, I'm just waiting for the murder-suicide that'll make me happy. Oh, that is really sick. Stop it. You, but, know, you know, you still have people doing that with the Ramses, and uh, these are the same people, uh, you know, looking for the Kenyan birth certificate. They don't want the truth. <laughs> they just don't want to let go. Yeah, it's like their lives are so empty that this is exactly. what they wrap themselves up in. I, I'm, I, I'm a registered independent. I have been all my life. I, I, I covered the White House. I covered Capitol Hill, and I, I knew early I need to be a registered independent. But so mean, I, anything to do with Bill Riley? And just remember that as I tell you this next story. Um, what's his name on Fox News? Not O'Reilly. Uh, Beck. Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck. He's not a friend of mine. I don't know the man. No, I, I have a thing about anti-Semites. They just bug me. <laughs> well, but you know, he announces that he's got a disease that may make him go blind in a year. And so I went back and I looked at that revelation in People Magazine on the comments. I was stunned. I hope he goes blind now. Oh, I hope he also loses his life. I ho- now, now that he's going to lose his eyesight, I hope he loses his voice. You're out of your mind, bro. You know, it's just like, uh, wh- what's, what's wrong with us? 
He says I'm an idiot because I mentioned Beck's endorsement of the anti-Semitic book. What do you know about Glenn Beck? Give me some background. On September 21st... We got our producer in there now. Really? Yes. (laughs) Tell me. On September 21st... Go. He endorsed a book by... Her name is uh, Elaine uh, Dinkel. Dinkel. Elaine Boozler? No, not Boozler. Dinkel. Yeah. Uh Well, I started something here. Yes. And he said something to the effect of this is one of the great thinkers, one of the people who inspired me and recommended everyone to read her book. The book is uh, one of her other books, or one of the other books by the same person, is Adolf Hitler and Appreciation. Anyway, it's what part about the international Zionist banking conspiracy. Well, don't say just anyway and throw it under the, the bus. I'll tell you, he ain't an anti-Semite. Well, this, is, this, was the, this was the question. And so when he was asked if he would apologize for that, he said no, which, which kind of bothered me. So if Matt doesn't think he's an anti-Semite, and he's entitled to his opinion. I'm a little bit concerned he may be for recommending that book so highly. Well, but, okay, you, I, listen, you're you're an idiot, and no one throws you under the bus, bro. <laughs> I get thrown under the bus by you every week. Oh, Do you notice I'm just <laughs> staying quiet on this one, fellas? Yeah. I don't. No, well, that's that's our producer, who also happens to be one of my closest friends. It's hard to imagine that, by the way, it sounds, but he is However, a However, he does have some different political leanings than you do. Well, I don't have any political leanings. I'm just a communist. Well, I'm married to a good Jewish man, and um, I, I had never heard that about Glenn Beck, but I've heard a lot of things about Glenn Beck, but not that. Anyway, my point is... Diane, that's because you don't live in Burl's world. (laughs) (laughs) Cue the Twilight Zone music, is that what you're saying? He appears to be be a normal young Semite. (laughs) (laughs) Get that man a microphone, I want to hear what he's saying. Yes, hello. Anyway, (laughs) it did did shock me at the uh, revelations of these people commenting not only on Mikhail Salahi, but on a lot of other things. Oh, they'll do now. it to you too, Diane. Oh, they do it to me, but they're mostly Michael Jackson people. Why you do know, they pick on her more than her husband? You know, th- that's the way I start the book. I start the book talking about beautiful blonde women. We ha- love to hate beautiful blonde women. I was married we to one for 30 years. We love to hate handsome men. We love to hate... Uh, punk actors who do all the wrong things, but they're successful. We it, look. I don't. I don't mean to be cruel here, but if the, if this couple looked like oh Charlie Wrangle and Elena Kagan, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about. You're absolutely right. I never thought. Now about here, that this way. comes back to another question. I want to ask you about news, and this has always been a, a theory that not only I've had, other people have had about how American news is structured, and that is. Uh, so first of all, red makes green, lead with blood, you know, auto accident or someone being murdered. Mm-hmm. Something to be afraid of. Something to make yourself feel better than someone else. My life is better than theirs or they're more screwed up than I am. And then well, that's, happy, the, that's the basis of all prejudice. And then a happy story about an animal. And then if you sit and watch the, uh, the news, local news, especially here in Los Angeles, you can almost see the formatics of it. And here's someone who is, appears to be rich, and their life is screwed up, and see how much better you are than they are. Right. So they hit all of the points that you need to make a big uh, front-page story. Dan, have you seen the video that was taken on the date in, back in November by Bravo? No, I have not. Uh, although, last Thursday night, they showed a little snippet of it. And you see them approaching the Secret Service kiosk, and the person saying, Oh, gee, well, you're not on my list. Go on in. That Go on in. Oh, now, yeah, right, What right. part of that sounds like gate crashing? <laughs> Hello, none of it. Sounds like they know them. None of it. You know, it's funny. The, the Salahis told me that they really thought 
they were just going for the welcoming ceremony, like the receiving line. Hello, Mr. Prime Minister, because Tark Salahi's polo team was about to play the Indian polo team. So it made logical sense to them that they'd be invited just for the welcoming ceremony. Do you know that once they got inside, they're uh, ushered from here to there, first to a reception where they all had a cocktail. Well, she doesn't drink, but he had a cocktail, and Katie Couric was there, and, oh, everybody rubbed shoulders. And then they went in to the receiving line, and much to their surprise, they thought, you know, they'd be ushered out. They were ushered into the dinner tent. They could have stayed and had dinner. They were also announced when they came in. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) The only only reason they didn't stay for dinner is because she'd been filming with Bravo all day long. (laughs) We're we're rapidly running out of time. It's been the fastest hour in I was going to say the same thing. Oh, my gosh, all right. Have you had fun? I have, and I'll have more fun if everybody goes to Amazon.com checks out Cirque du Salahi. Yes, and don't leave all the same rude uh, remarks that you do on my books. (laughs) 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 Say nice things. We'll try to get you box seat uh, for the opera. Wear a long coat. No one will notice. Have a wonderful day. Keep up the good work. I hope you have. If you're in L.A., come see us in person. It'll be fun. You got it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. That was a fun show. (laughs) You can always count on Matt to liven things up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, if you actually, if you go on my Facebook page, those of you who should all be my friends on Facebook, I did post uh, an article about the uh, the anti-Semitism issue on that uh, book. So you can do the, the background check. I don't know how to touch that. Yeah, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. But now, ladies and gentlemen, the most important thing to realize is that the standard of the broadcast industry yes. is about to set the standard for the universe. It's coming. An outlaw radio. <laughs>